Welcome to the Regenerative Medicine Podcast Series, brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists. This podcast was created through the joint efforts of the Technology and Research Subcommittees of the Resident and Fellows Council of the AAP. Join us as we interview researchers and leaders in the field of regenerative medicine. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. This series is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed by guests and hosts on this podcast are their own and do not represent any organization or institution. Hi, welcome back to our regenerative medicine series. I'm one of the hosts, Kevin Vu. I'm a PGY2 in physical medicine and rehab from Spalding. And I'm Oksana Witt, a PGY3 resident at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I am Josh Lewis, a first-year resident, currently doing my prelim year at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mountner. Dr. Ken Mountner is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He is board certified in PM&R with a subspecialty certification in sports medicine. He is the Director of Sports Medicine at Emory and fellowship director for the ACGME accredited sports medicine fellowship. Dr. Mountner is co-editor of the Atlas of Interventional Musculoskeletal Ultrasound, as well as Musculoskeletal Physical Exam, an evidence-based approach. In addition, he is considered a leader in the field of ultrasound and orthobiologic treatment for chronic soft tissue and joint disorders, and has published numerous studies in these areas with ongoing clinical trials. Dr. Mountner serves as head team physician for the Atlanta Hawks, medical director for the Harlem Globetrotters, as well as a team physician for the Atlanta Braves, Emory University, and Georgia Tech. Thanks for joining us uh, on this most recent episode. Really glad to have you guys again. Um, We're joined today with Dr. Mountner, who's an expert on PRP coming from Emory. Dr. Mountner, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to start out uh, with a really simple question, and that is, can you give us just like a one-liner describing yourself? Just give us a brief one-liner to kind of help our audience get to know you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a team and R sports medicine physician. I've been practicing for 17 years at Emory Sports Medicine Center. I've been here my, my whole time, and I do a lot of uh, orthobiologics in my practice. Um, and that's kind of what you're here for today is we want to have an open conversation with you about what orthobiologics means to you. How would you define orthobiologics? Orthobiologics to me falls under uh, subclassification of the field of regenerative medicine. The FDA has labeled regenerative medicine as its own field of medicine focusing on you know tissue repair, regeneration. And orthobiologics is using uh, biological agents, whether they're autologous or allergenic, to treat orthopedic conditions. And there are so many different ways to interpret orthobiologics or, or use orthobiologics. Is there something specific about the field that you feel is most important to that definition? You know, the field obviously hasn't been around very long. And so I think the the definition is still evolving. I think everyone's interpretation of what we should and shouldn't be doing is still evolving. If you look across the landscape of the world, I think in different countries, it would probably be defined differently. You know, at this point in time, the FDA 
uh, somewhat controlled what we as physicians can use on our patients. Over the last few years, they've limited the scope of what we can actually uh, use in our orthobiologic practices. And with the FDA uh, approval that you've kind of mentioned, um, tell us a little bit about some of the issues that you've run into that space. It seems like this overarching concept of regulation is something that's a recurrent message throughout orthobiologic use. Yeah, it's a constantly evolving landscape, right? So if you listen to this podcast, you know, a year from now, it could be even different than it is right now. But, you know, basically the FDA is made to, to say that what we do is safe. Uh, they regulate drugs for the most part. And a lot of the injections that we do in our own practices, they consider a drug. And because they consider a drug, they're allowed to regulate it. Um, and they do most of this under, you know, their, their HCTP products, uh, which are human cell tissue uh, products that people use. And they consider some of the, some of the cellular products to be HTTP products. Now, most of what we're talking about today is PRP, which stands for platelet-rich plasma. And that really doesn't fall under the HCTP. And so it really doesn't have any regulation by the FDA, at least not at this point. And to kind of back up a little bit, can you give us a little bit of background on PRP? I'm sure most of our listeners have a basic understanding and are well familiar with it, but just for, you know, the sake of uh, letting them understand, what would your, how would you explain PRP to a patient or to a bystander? Yeah, PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. Um, people started doing, using PRP in the early 1970s uh, during a transfusion surgery as a way of, of kind of preserving blood and saving blood. And then the, the first really orthopedic cases, you know, were not until the early 2000s. Before that, there was some uh, dental work and, and maxillofacial surgery work. And then in the equine world, they were using PRP and horses even before we were doing it in humans. And then in the early 2000s, there were some really early applications of, of PRP and a, a couple of studies that came out around 2005, 2006. You can define PRP in, in several different ways. Uh, some people will define it as any concentration of platelets above that which is baseline. Uh, the original definition by Marx, who was one of the pioneers of this back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, defined it as having two times a baseline platelet concentration. And the idea is that inside of our platelets are these uh, uh, granules, and, and these granules secrete these growth factors, and these growth factors are what are responsible to heal our body. And so the example I sometimes tell patients is, you know, if you cut yourself, you will bleed, and their platelets will be released from your blood vessel, those platelets will form a scab and, and kind of, you know, clot off the bleeding. And then from that scab will come all these healing factors. And eventually you can't tell that you cut yourself, you know, for, for most cuts. And, and that's kind of what the body wants to do. And so platelets are there to kind of cause a healing response in the body from a injury or, an, or anything that's just not kind of healing on its own. Thanks for that explanation. I think that uh, a great succinct way to, to put it for our listeners. Well, I just saw that you you had a lot of articles on PRP, and uh, I just had a question regarding what are the specific populations we should be offering orthobiologics to, and who would benefit the most from it? Well, we're still figuring the answer to that question out. So um, I typically like to categorize orthobiologics into two categories. One is you know treatment of soft tissue injuries or chronic soft tissue injuries, especially tendinopathies. That's by far and away uh, the most common soft tissue use of PRP. And the other is for people with joint-related problems such as osteoarthritis. And I actually believe the mechanism of action of how these things work are different in the two populations. 
So we know that as we get a little bit older, that our body's innate ability to heal kind of goes down. So PRP for tendinopathies, although we see teenagers who have, you know, jumper's knee, patella tendinitis and Achilles tendinitis, a lot of them heal on their own and have a lot of inherent ability to heal and do well and, and, and may just need time and rehab and all the typical things. However, people, you know, my age, um, a lot of our recreational athletes in their 40s to 60s, we, we don't heal as well as we used to. And we overdo our body still like and sometimes we need kind of a jump start in that healing process. And that's the whole point of PRP when we're treating tendons. Now, joints are a little bit different, right? When we're treating early arthritis or, you know, mild to moderate arthritis in a certain joint inside of these platelets, and this may get a little bit confusing for some, but inside of these platelets are both pro and anti-inflammatory properties. And so the, the whole idea of treating a joint is to kind of return that joint to kind of a more natural homeostasis. So the joint is less inflamed, less irritated. Um, and by harnessing some of these anti-inflammatory properties of PRP, um, I think we can do that in a very safe and effective way. We're not going to fix the cartilage in their knee. We're not going to regenerate their joint back to the way it was, you know, 20 years ago, but we can provide reduction in pain, less inflammation, and hopefully better function in the joints. But, but to further, sorry, one more point in your question, if you don't mind, is that, you know, I don't believe there is an age range for PRP. I mean, I've done it on, on people as young as 14. I've done it on people as in their 90s. Um, I think that as we do get older, our platelets may not be quite a, as good for healing certain things, but I do think there's still benefits to doing PRP, even in that population. I guess the other question, I'd be curious to see if there's any studies that have looked at some of the age differences. I, I know you mentioned that certain people are probably better responders. But part of me wonders if there's been any studies that have sort of taken, you know, someone who was in their twenties and then 10 years later looked at maybe, and I don't even know if they would have like platelet rich products that would be like frozen and, and then utilized later down the road to see if the like response was any different. Yeah. I mean, they, um, yes and no. I mean, we're not we're not storing these products. We're not freezing them and using them later. The FDA do doesn't want us to do that. So these need mm -hmm. to be point of care kind of same day delivery systems. Um, some studies have shown some decrement in products in as people age and, and other studies haven't really found that. Um, I mean, I could get really more complicated and say, look, you know, I, I talk about platelets. We talked about some growth factor, but there's, we don't even know what in the soup is, is maybe the most bioactive here, right? I mean, there's sure. some people out there who think that, that monocytes are really helpful for healing and, and, you know, some people will, you know, certain growth factors, some people think we should be trying to get the, you know, the exosomes out of our blood and these exosomes, these extracellular vesicles have other, you know, regenerative and, and anti-inflammatory properties. And there are other molecules like alpha two macroglobulins that may have therapeutic effects that reduce inflammation inside of joints and things. And so, so that's, once again, one of the challenges here is that you can go in so many different directions here, and it's hard to control all these variables in the studies. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these are great questions, and, and, you know, I'm not a bench scientist, I'm a clinician, and so um, I'm sure I don't understand the growth factor profiles as well as some who, who could tell more about them, but, but we, we just don't know yet. And how do you use orthobiologics in sport medicine in particular? 
You know, it depends on the level of the athletes, right? And so as a sports medicine physician, what makes us different than just an orthopedic doctor is that a lot of our athletes are in a season or in a sport that has a time frame. And in that time frame is not the right time to be doing orthobiologics because these procedures, especially treating chronic tendon issues, take you know several months to recover. And so uh, doing an orthobiologic procedure is not going to get your athlete back out there quickly. And so we try to manage things through the season and, and do these a lot in, in off season. Um, it's a little different when you have an, maybe an early arthritic joint where, you know, the, the time off wouldn't be as, as long. And so our goal is to start with the most effective, uh, most conservative treatment option for our patients, often cheapest if we can, although that obviously doesn't matter as much for our professional and elite athletes. And, and, you know, we still believe in the corner, at least I still believe in the cornerstones of rehabilitation and, and exercises to kind of help heal a lot of these issues and make people better. And, and sometimes medications can help. Uh, but when people aren't getting better and we've done all the conservative treatments and people are not able to play their sport or their activity as they want to, I believe platelet-rich plasma is a great option to get the vast majority of people back. I kind of want to circle back, you know, you've mentioned the FDA, you've mentioned the regulations, you've mentioned the growing body of literature related to PRP and some of its uh, potential benefits. Uh, there was a really interesting article that I think uh, you were a part of the response for in JAMA that was talking about some of the applications of PRP, specifically related to chronic Achilles tendinopathy. Um, I think it was a PRP versus sham. Um, you highlighted in your response a couple, I think, of uh, really important things related to this evidence and this literature, uh, especially its limitations. Can you talk a little bit more about those issues? Yeah, I mean, this is nothing new. PRP, uh, I, I put out a PRP classification system with a few colleagues back in 2015. And, and basically, the, the title of our paper was a call for standardization uh, in PRP. And the point was that you know, in 2021, if you're going to publish an article on PRP, which has been around now and in the literature for over 15 years in orthopedic conditions, you really need to talk about what you're injecting into people. And just saying you're injecting this substance into people is not high enough quality to be published in a journal, especially a journal as reputable as JAMA, uh, which that's someone published in. And so this article on the Achilles tendinopathy, which was a well-designed study in, in certain respects. I mean, it had a sham treatment, it had an active treatment, it had a you know sufficient number of patients for, for power analysis and, and all that, but they used a very strange PRP system, which isn't even available in the US. They didn't measure any of their PRPs, so they didn't tell us the platelet concentration or the white blood cell concentration, the red blood cell concentration that they were injecting into people. So it would be you know, equal to doing a study on a certain antibiotic drug and saying we gave these patients this medicine, and yet we didn't, we're not telling you what the dose of the medicine was. And, and people don't understand that just like anything, there's a dose of platelets that it's probably needed to be effective. And furthermore, in this study, they didn't use any guidance to put the medicine into the Achilles tendon. And so although the Achilles is a fairly superficial tendon, we know from a lot of other studies that um, not guiding the medicine, especially with PRP directly into the area of pathology, will not yield as good of outcomes. And then I also had a question. You kind of mentioned how a lot of these injections should be uh, image guided. We're kind of moving away from the landmark 
sort of ideal of injections and using ultrasound, has there been a direct comparison between using some sort of injected uh, orthobiologic injected via landmark versus image guided? No, there, has, there hasn't been that. There have been a lot of studies with other like cortisone and other things comparing image guided to ultrasound guided um, approach to it. And, and they've shown significantly greater accuracy uh, with ultrasound guided injection versus landmark guided injection for, you know, knee joints, subacromial, you know, decrovanes, plantar fascia, I mean, you name it almost. The, the, the difference is with cortisone, if you're going to be injecting that, sometimes close, it's probably good enough, right? But with uh, biologic, close isn't good enough. You really have to get it into the region where the pathology is. And although that hasn't really been shown in the study, um, I, I think most of the good studies, all the good studies, especially looking at tendons, you know, if you're going to inject a knee joint and, and you're telling me you're going to do that without guidance, I can maybe buy that. But anything outside of a knee joint, you know, especially the tendon work that we do, you need to know that you're putting the medicine in the right spot. And one thing that you touched on is these sort of factors, you know, you said the PRP preparation, the, the image guidance, are there other external factors that you're kind of worried about related to this increasing interest in PRP? Uh, I'm talking whether that be compensation, whether that be some sort of other external factors that you're worried about. Is that ever an issue? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that certain certain magazines, certain journals uh, have a bias uh, for or against PRP. Uh, I think a lot of authors, you know, you know by the author's name if their publication is going to be a bias towards or against PRP. And, you know, I, I hate to think that some of the authors may have conflicts of interest with other pharmaceutical companies or devices or, or other things. Uh, but, you know, that point has been raised by others. You know, uh, we can get into it if you want to, but there was just another article published in JAMA last week, uh, very similar for knee arthritis, looking at PRP versus a control. And they found, you know, well-designed study. Uh, they found no difference in PRP over a, a saline control into the knee, into the knee joint. Uh, but once again, they used a PRP system that was barely over baseline platelets, which actually really wasn't in some instances. And, and really isn't PRP, it's a more of what we call an ACP or an autologous condition product. And the problem is that people read the headlines and don't read the article and, and they, they, don't, they get the, the wrong message, especially when you have a powerful journal like JAMA with a large you know, impact factor and, and people are reading these articles and thinking, okay, well, PRP doesn't work for this. But number one, like I said, they, they had a very, that system is known to be notoriously poor in terms of what it produces about seven times less platelet concentration than what my PRP would produce, which is a magnitude of, of less platelets being delivered to the area. Um, and then number two, once again, they relied on the manufacturer's quantification of what's in the PRP and they didn't test their own PRP, even for this really large study. I, I, we wrote another letter to the editor for this one as well. We'll see if it gets published. Yeah, it seems like you're highlighting all these issues and that you're trying to address them. My question for you is, are there components of a study, uh, specifically a PRP study that you would look at and say, hey, this is what is needed to do a really rigorous study, or this is what is needed to provide results that would be more aligned with the unbiased view? 
you know, I think even in the studies that we talked about, you can garner something for them, right? So this study I just mentioned about the platelets, uh, the, the PRP for NEOA, you can say, okay, well, if that low dose of platelet concentration, maybe it isn't any better than saline. And so you kind of check the box and say, all right, we need to be higher than this number, right? Um, and so I think to do a study, uh, I think the design of the studies, like I said, were good, right? You, you, you need at this point doing a case series on PRP isn't, isn't really adding much to the literature for most areas of the body because we've, we've been there, we've done that. So I think doing randomized controlled trials are definitely the way to go. Um, I think comparing it to um, some other sort of treatment, whether it's hyaluronic acid or saline or corticosteroids are appropriate, uh, but realize saline is not a sham treatment. There, there's certainly therapeutic effects of saline injected into a joint that's been proven uh, by multiple studies over time. But I think that we need to quantify our PRP. We need to tell the readers what we are injecting in every sample. And, and it might be a dose response where we find that, okay, if we inject a certain amount, people do well, but the ones who didn't do well, they didn't inject that same amount of platelets. And there actually is a study out there that suggested that 10 billion platelets delivered to a knee joint might be the number or the critical number needed to get a therapeutic benefit in the knee. Um, this study that I just mentioned delivered about 1.65 billion platelets on average into their patients, which is like I said, about seven, six to seven times lower than, than it really should have been. But, but let me say this, we don't know. I'm, I'm not up here saying we have all the answers. I'm certainly not up here gonna say that PRP works for everything. Um, I think that there are, not I think, I know there are 30 randomized controlled trials out there comparing PRP for knee osteoarthritis to hyaluronic acid. And I believe in 29 out of the 30 PRP came on top. I know there are multiple, you know, systematic and, and meta-analyses reviews looking at treatments for knee osteoarthritis and mild to moderate knee OA that shows PRP is probably as effective or more effective than almost any other treatment that can be provided uh, in mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis. Um, it doesn't last forever. It lasts for about a year. It doesn't work as well with severe arthritis. It has its limitations. And, and there is a proportion of patients, you know, maybe 20, 25% who, who are non-responders and aren't going to respond to that treatment. And maybe a part of it is, is the product that they're getting, right? Maybe they don't have a good sample. Maybe part of it is their patient's internal system of, of what their knee joint is like. It's just isn't going to respond to biologics. And, and who knows what else? I mean, there are lots of factors that we still haven't even looked into yet that, that we probably should. In terms of uh, some of the, the growth factors, have any of the studies actually gone in and actually looked at some of the different concentrations? Like I'm assuming like VEGF, platelet growth factors, some of those other ones are probably like TNF alpha um, are, are probably like some of the big ones that they're looking at, but have, have they ever like quantified some of those values to kind of put platelet product to like the cytokine analysis and all those other things that are ongoing? Yeah, a few of the studies have gone into depth of looking at certain growth factors and, and interleukins and cytokines and these things, but but there's so many out there and, and we don't really know what to do with some of that information, right? I mean, we know actually in some cases having too much of certain growth factors can actually promote certain scarring and other things. And so, for example, um, over the last few years, they've shown that in muscle, if you inject, you know, really high concentration platelets, you will cause scarring into the, the muscle more and that you probably need more platelet poor plasma. So less of these kind of, um, you know, TNF alphas and other uh, TGF and other things that may be more um, likely to form scar. And so, yeah, I do think that 
those things have been looked at in some studies, but not enough to really ha have any answers yet. Mm -hmm. And that's not something you can really do a bedside analysis on, right? That has to yeah. go to a lab and it's got to be studied that way. And so even people like myself who do quality control on our products and measure mm -hmm. our platelet counts and our red blood cells and white blood cell counts, we're not getting that in-depth analysis. And you're right. I'm sure that varies from, from patient to patient as well. I was wondering more in general, if we could circle back to what brought you to the field of regenerative medicine? What sparked your initial interest in it? Yeah, so um, I, I have an origin story for how I got into this. So um, right, I was a sports medicine physician. I, I did my residency at Emory and PM&R. Then I did a sports medicine fellowship in Birmingham. I came back to Emory and I loved my job. I didn't learn any biologics in my job or in, or in my fellowship, I mean. Um, we didn't learn any ultrasound, obviously, back then. We weren't doing it. But I, I found, you know, after three, four years of practice, just some limitations in certain patients, we just couldn't get better. And then certain athletes, we just couldn't get better. And they were dealing with these problems and, and, and couldn't, couldn't find a solution for them. And so, you know, I read Alan Mishra's paper in 2006. It was 20 patients with lateral epicondylopathy, you know, tennis elbow. And 15 of them, we put in the PRP group, five of them had a control, just a, a, a numbing medicine injection. And of the 15, um, almost all of them got better by like six months or so later, it took them a few months to get better. And so it was really pretty significant. These people had, I think a year and a half or so on average of pain. So they've been dealing with this for quite a while. And so I had an athlete, she was a WNBA player, a uh, women's professional basketball player with a five years of chronic patella tendinopathy that hadn't gotten better with anything she's tried. And she would think about retiring and, and was just so fed up with it. And she had had a friend who went out to see Alan for or Dr. Mishra for this PRP. And she talked to me about it. And I said, well, I think I can do that. And so, um, you know, back then there were none of these commercial machines really available. So I, I took some blood from her. I found an old centrifuge. I spun it. And then I, I manually went in and took out the, the Buffy coat and the uh, platelets and uh, some white cells and whatever I could from each of these small little test tubes. And, you know, I was doing ultrasound at the time. This was like early 2009. I injected her patella tendon with PRP and, you know, lo and behold, she did fantastic. And, you know, there's, there's, there's news stories on her and articles on her and, and us. And, and it was a great success story. And that was kind of how it all began. And so, you know, I, I was definitely an early uh, adopter of the technology. Uh, I've tried to stay on top of it. I, I don't try to add new things until I think they can have some proof to them and, and proof behind them. But, um, you know, so I'm, I'm 12 plus years now into doing PRP. And, and obviously, I still believe in it. Um, I want to circle back to, um, you know, you've built this reputation on PRP and uh, these regenerative treatments, but there's more, I think, coming up on the horizon. And I wanted to ask you some of your thoughts on the use of stem cells as well, seeing as that's a little bit more recent, a little bit more new in the field. Um, is there any sort of opinion that you might have on its use? Or can you tell us what the literature has been uh, showing for the use of stem cells uh, as injections? You know, that, that's a very loaded term, uh, stem cells. So I'll break it down a little bit, right? I mean, uh, for patients, we sometimes use the term stem cells. We know that most of the stem cell treatments that we're injecting to people are, are don't have a lot of true stem cells in them. And so uh, we try and use other words like cellular therapy and, and, and these sorts of things. But so I, I may slip up a few times and say the word stem cells, and I don't want people who are truest and know me to understand that we know these are not highly concentrated uh, cells in these products. And so 
And then you got to break it down again by, you know, are we doing allergenic or autologous? And then if we're doing autologous, are we doing culture expanded or point of care, you know, cellular treatments? And so um, based on what we can do in the United States, you know, we can't really use any allergenic products currently. And most of those allergenic products that claim to have stem cells in them probably don't, or they're dead or dying. And, and some are trying to get approval from, um, from the FDA to have a license to be used in the States. And hopefully some of them will prove that they can be used in the States. And we can't do any culture and expansion of our cells in this country. So we're talking about point of care products, um, mostly you know, bone marrow derived or adipose derived uh, products that have a, an array of growth factors in them, as well as some MSCs or mesenchymal stem cells or some will call them signaling cells. And so if you look at the literature um, over the last several years, it, it certainly is not to the point where it needs to be in terms of showing the response of treating patients with these cellular treatments. Probably about the only cellular treatment that has really good literature is treating avascular necrosis with um, BMAC, bone marrow concentrate, mm -hmm. into you know, stage zero, pre-collapse AVN, basically. And, and Philip Hernigue in from France has done studies on this and, you know, revascularized and basically reverse that condition. In terms of treating osteoarthritis, there are some case reports in case series and, and some studies suggesting it can reduce pain and improve function. Um, the only studies that have shown any true possibly cartilage regeneration, or I should say most of the studies that have shown some possible cartilage regeneration have used culture and expanded stem cell, which we don't use in the United States. Uh, so I still don't think we're to the point where the cellular treatments that we're doing in, in 2021 are really reverse in osteoarthritis. And my opinion, when better studies are done, is that I do think these treatments should turn out to be better than PRP, because uh, they tend to have more powerful cellular products in them than just PRP. They have a lot more something called IRAP, which is in the leukemia receptor antagonist protein. They have some things like A2M in them and other things that, that can help with inflammation and, and reducing pain inside of joints. Uh, but, but we don't know. You know, there, there was been some studies comparing them to PRP that have shown fairly equal results. And there've been a couple that have shown superior results to just doing PRP for, for certain issues. And, and then even less literature is provided on using these cellular products to treat soft tissue problems like chronic tendinopathies. And in my opinion, I think this may even be a better use for them in some instances, because I do think they, they may have more powerful healing factors for tendons and soft tissues than, than just platelets do. But we, we really don't have the literature and I'm not going to be up here promoting that that's what we should be doing without having some more evidence behind it. So a lot more to come in that area. Yeah. I'm curious in terms of like bone marrow versus adipose derived, any thoughts on which way you had stronger evidence towards success? That's actually one of my big areas of interest. And so I did publish a study two years ago. It wasn't randomized. It was a prospective study where we compared those who got micronized fat tissue versus bone marrow concentrate. And we followed them up like a year and a half afterwards and we found no difference in outcomes. Both functionally got better than they were before. Statistically, I should say, got better than they were before, but there was no difference between the two. The bone marrow group was a little bit further out because I've been doing it for longer. So I had a little bit longer outcome than them. But overall, they did statistically the same. So generally, you know, I have a loose protocol that says uh, for various reasons, we know that as you age, you have less 
cells, you have less MSCs in your bone marrow. Um, you know, so a newborn, they say will have a one in 10,000 of their, of their nuclear cells would be a MSC. And by age 80, it's like one in 2 million. So that number changes quite a bit over time. So as we get older, we know that bone marrow is probably a not as good of an option if you really want to capture the most cells that you can. And so I look for more fat, which doesn't seem to undergo the same senescence that the bone marrow does, although it probably does to some degree. And, you know, younger people under 50, under 40, I, I tend to like bone marrow more in certain instances. And for a lot of people in between, it could kind of go either way. And, you know, most of my professional athletes aren't going to have any real fat to give. And so we do a fair amount of bone marrow in these folks um, when we do, when we need a product to, to be used like that. Um, and most of my patients who are over 50 would much prefer me to take their fat <laughs> than their bone marrow. And, and since I don't really have strong evidence that one works better than the other, sometimes the patient preferences do come into play. When you're taking fat products, is this more visceral fat or is it subcutaneous? Because there's been the differences in like white versus brown. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. That that's shown to not really matter very much. Um, they used to think periumbilical fat may have a little bit more, you know, uh, cellular products because of you know fetal remains and other things like that from from your umbilicus when you're, um, you know, born. But yeah, we we, we don't go sub Q. We go deeper into the fat. Um, usually, we go around the stomach area, love handle area. But sometimes we we'll go to the posterior thigh or, or the buttock area to get our adipose tissue. Are there any uh patient populations that this would be contra or any of these treatments would be contraindicated. I know, I know you said like the athlete that's currently in season is probably not a great idea, but any like ones that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not a true contraindication. It's just, they can't play their sport kind of thing. Right. right. So, um, you know, the biggest contraindication would be somebody who had a, a blood borne cancer, you know, mm -hmm. a, a lymphoma leukemia uh, situation where you wouldn't want to use an autologous product on them. Uh, especially a, a bone marrow or a platelet rich plasma product, at least not without permission of their oncologist. And so generally we like folks to be five years uh, out from remission from the bloodborne cancers and even other cancers, even if they're not, if they're within a year, we tend to kind of stay away from them. You mentioned VEGF before, and there's some other growth factors that, that these products stimulate, which at least theoretically could, you know, accelerate maybe some of these cancer cells or cancer lines. And so I try and get permission from oncology for any of those patients I'm not sure about. And then we don't know so much about what to do with patients who are on blood thinners or, you know, platelet inhibiting drugs. And if that's a true contraindication or not, especially if they cannot come off of that drug, there have been at least some case reports saying that you can have successful treatments with these, but, but those are some other areas where maybe there's a relative contraindication or we should try to certainly get them off their blood thinner or their platelet inhibitor if possible, if medically possible. Definitely sounds like a field where both the source of these platelets or sorry, these are products and uh, the evidence behind them are, are still really developing. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you was you probably had multiple, if not hundreds of conversations with patients who are requesting them or requesting some sort of regenerative medicine treatment. Is there a certain approach that you like to take when you're explaining it to them? Um, you know, you've mentioned the importance of this terminology of all these products. How do you approach a patient who is requesting a regenerative treatment and yeah. maybe not under fully understanding what that might mean? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I think that's, that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. I mean, I think that's the most important thing that I try to impress upon people when I talk to them or residents or fellows. It's like, it's easy to put a needle and, and inject a product into somebody that doesn't take a lot of expertise or training to learn. 
But the conversation about the expectation and the recovery and what we're doing um, is very nuanced and needs to be a very thoughtful approach. And so, you know, the first thing you need to figure out is what sort of preconceived notions the patient has, right? Are, are they coming in here and they don't know anything about these things and you're the first time that they've ever heard it? Or, you know, have they been to seminars on some of these, you know, pop-up stem cell clinic shops around the city, and they've been told that you're going to cure their arthritis and you're going to get them 100% better um, or, or somewhere in between, right? And so people are on all sides of the fence. So I try and, I try and see what they've learned so far, and I try and, you know, educate them on, on the gaps in knowledge there. And, and so I, I tell patients that in some cases, these are still experimental, but in some cases... I don't think they are. I mean, I think there is some evidence behind some of this that I can look at and tell patients, not just personal evidence that I've published, but also things in the literature as well. Um, but I tell them they're not covered by insurance and that they don't work for everybody. And, you know, I've done this enough to realize some condition that I just tell people it's, it's not worth the time or the money to do it. And so, um, and, and understanding that and patients usually appreciate the honesty and not, you know, just taking their money for something that probably isn't going to work. So after we have that conversation, then we also have the conversation about the fact that these things take time to work and that it's not like you get a cortisone shot and you feel better a few days later, you, you get an injection put inside your joint or put inside your tendon. You know, initially there's probably going to be some increased pain, then there's going to be some baseline symptom, and then there's going to be this kind of reparative phase, especially for the soft tissue procedures that we do. And, and the rehabilitation should come and mimic that reparative phase and that it could take three to six months until we really have a good functional outcome from even a single PRP injection. And so they need to kind of buy into that. You know, when, when people have surgery done, like truly have surgery done, it seems like they buy into the rehab and the rest and they know that this takes time. Um, but, but with an in-office percutaneous procedure, I think there's a little more education to know that you can't go out there in a week or two and try to go back to doing the things you were doing before, or you can, but at your own, own peril. So, so those are a lot of the conversations we have. Um, and then, you know, almost inevitably a six or eight weeks when they come back, if they're not great, they, they think it failed. And we have to go over it again about biologically how platelets work and, and how uh, these growth factors work and, and how we need to give these things time to work. And, and you know, and, and then at 12 weeks, a lot of them are doing great or significantly better. And, and once again, there's some that aren't doing as well as you want them to. And, and so then you have to have additional conversations at that point about what other options we have. Kind of mentioned you know, when you're educating patients, uh, part of it is also about the compensation. Um, I wanted to ask you, are we nearing a critical mass at this point in terms of regenerative treatments, in terms of having insurance involved or having treatments covered for patients? Are we reaching that level to where regenerative treatments are being accepted as this sort of frontline therapy for these degenerative sort of pathologies? Probably not. Um, you know, I, I would have thought this far into it, there'd be some um, of these treatments that were covered by commercial insurance and by CMS, and, and there really aren't. Um, TRICARE does cover a, a few conditions, you know, mild to moderate knee arthritis, glute medius tendinopathy, lateral epicondylopathy with, with platelet-rich plasma. You know, you get articles like the couple that we talked about in big magazines, and it, it, it kind of puts us back quite a bit in, in the progress that we're making. So 
I think we still have a lot more work to do. I don't think people quite understand that this is not a one-stop shopping where PRP is PRP and you just inject it and, and it should work or not work and that we still have a lot more to figure out. So um, I guess I'm a little more pessimistic about it over the last couple of years than I was uh, before that. I would have thought by now some condition would be covered. Um, I, I, I do think it is unfortunate that PRP is not an equitable treatment in, in healthcare. And with a lot of healthcare disparities, there are people who do not have access to this treatment because of that. And, and I don't really have a great solution for that right now. And what, what advice would you give for trainees who are interested in getting more involved in the field of regenerative medicine, but either do not know how to get involved or do not have access to opportunities specific to the field? Um, there's a few ways to, to get involved. I mean, there's certainly some textbooks uh, that are out there on the field of orthobiologics and, and regenerative medicine. You know, a couple of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Malenga uh, wrote one a few years ago, and that's a really with Dr. Abraham, and that's a great textbook out there. And then there's some organizations that I generally tell residents and, and fellows to consider joining where you can learn a lot more, uh, one of which is IOF, the Interventional Orthobiologic Foundation. Another one is TOBI, which is the Orthobiologic Institute. They have annual conferences at both of these, and IOF does a lot of hands-on teaching and weekend courses, very reputable courses with very well-trained physicians who are thoughtful and, and for the most part, I think, think like I do with a lot of these treatments. Um, AMSSM, which is, you know, I'm on the board of directors of AMSSM, which is the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, is getting more and more involved in the field of orthobiologics. We now have a subcommittee. Um, we usually have a pre-course at the annual conference and some content during the conference on biologics. And we have joined in the last year an association called the Biologics Association, which is an inter-organization association that is trying to kind of become the voice of biologics within orthopedics. And so there are folks from AOSSM, AANA, and uh, PM&R, um, IOF, and a few other organizations have joined the Biologics Association, and we put out monthly uh, webinars and educational content. We have an annual meeting now and, and hopefully have some papers, white papers and position papers and other things, you know, coming out over the next few years. And so through your member organization, you should be able to get access to a lot of the biological association information. And then kind of related to pursuing some sort of sports medicine or the biologic uh, related specialty, is there any sort of advice or or things that you wish you had known when you first started out that you know now after your experience? Well, I mean, I started out when we didn't know anything. So <laughs> I would say, you know, if I look back on my, you know, 12 years of doing these procedures, I honestly don't have very many regrets. Uh, I feel like at, at Emory where I work, we've gone about it in a as scientific of a way as you can. You know, anytime there's a new discipline or a new procedure being introduced, you know, you do need people who are pushing the envelope a little bit. You're going to have people who are telling you, you know, that this, that these things don't work. Um, and if you believe in it, you know, you have to keep grinding with the literature um, and continue to show people that there is benefit to the treatment. So, you know, I think you need to do it in a thoughtful way, in an educational way, and not in an obtrusive or a confrontational way. And so I think we've done that. I've had great support where I work of, of being able to pursue this over the last 12 years. I feel like we've made a lot of strides in this field in general. 
Um, and I do feel like we're getting to the point where in some circles and organizations it's being pretty well accepted, um, but certainly not enough. Um, and I, I'm hopeful over the next five to 10 years, we can really start to get some answers to these questions and, and get some standards out there to um, make the field more unified throughout the country. Similar question kind of related to how you're building this field. If you just had an unlimited budget, you had unlimited time, maybe multiple versions of yourself, what would you do <laughs> to kind of advance this field? What, what should we be, what we, we, should we be doing to push the field of orthobiologics a little bit further down the line and into the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody in an ideal situation in a utopian society, every patient that came in for an orthobiologic procedure, we would uh, use PRP for an example, we would draw their blood, uh, we would be able to analyze their blood on site, you know, see what the content of their blood, see what concentration of PRP they produced. Uh, we would even in a perfect world be able to examine their synovial fluid and evaluate what it is or isn't in their synovial fluid. And there hopefully will come a time when we can kind of match what a patient needs to what they could be missing in their joints. We're, we're certainly not close to that yet. I call that, you know, precision medicine, where we're really going to be precise about um, what we're injecting individualized to what a patient actually needs. Um, and, and for the cellular therapies, it's the same thing. And these point of care devices can somewhat tell you how many nucleated cells you're injecting, but we don't have anything at the bedside that can really tell us how many stem cells or mesenchymal cells we're injecting at the time of the procedure um, to know if we're doing an adequate dose. The issue with autologous products is, well, one of the issues with autologous products is just the large variability in patient to patient variability, or even, you know, if I were to draw your blood tonight, Kevin, and I were to draw your blood tomorrow morning, I would get a different concentration of platelets in your blood both times. And so it's hard to create a drug and to create a product and to create a treatment when there's that kind of variability in, in the products from, from day to day. So, so those are a few things. Um, I think more of us should be able to do that work, counting cells at the bedside. Um, I think we need large, really large registries across the country um, and databases of the patients that we treat. You know, if we're treating, if we have 10, 15, 20,000 people in these databases, um, we can then, and then we can look at how the treatments may differ. We may start to get some answers as to what works and what doesn't work and can kind of tweak our formula. And there are people who are, who are trying to get some of these databases, you know, started. And then, you know, we need the randomized controlled trials. Um, you know, I just finished doing a $13 million multi-center randomized controlled trial, looking at a bunch of different cellular treatments uh, for knee osteoarthritis. And it's a lot of work and it's been three, four years in the making and we still don't know what the study results are. Um, but, but that's what you need. I mean, you need people doing that kind of work and, and kind of seeing how these things kind of hold up over time. And, you know, I do think in the future, I do think there are going to be off the shelf regenerative medicine products that are going to hopefully be game changers and really uh, be disease modifying agents that, that just don't exist right now or aren't on the market right now, which will make our lives a lot easier if we don't have to, you know, harvest bone marrow or harvest fat. Um, I don't know when those things will be available and I don't know if or how much better they might be, but, but I do think in the future that there will be some products out there that will prove beneficial. And, you know, we haven't talked in this whole time about, you know, how for the last, you know, 40 years of, of orthopedic work, we've been using, you know, corticosteroids 
to the nth degree. And, and it's only been over the last five or 10 years that we're starting to realize how toxic some of these, you know, injections are for tendons and for joints and for other things, not to mention all the anesthetic agents we inject with them. And so we do need to find a safer, longer lasting, um, healthier products to be injecting into people for their orthopedic condition and not just rely on what, what we've been doing for the last 40 or 50 years. Thanks for that, Dr. Mountner. Really appreciate your perspective as well as what your vision is for what you're planning and what you're thinking about in terms of the future of orthobiologics. Uh, before we kind of wrap up, um, is there any sort of specific advice, words of wisdom that you'd like to impart on us or the listeners at home? You know, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is to say that um, for the listeners, assuming a lot of listeners are going to be in the healthcare world out there who are listening to this podcast, we really got to read beyond the headlines because the headlines may tell one story, but you got to look into the article. You got to look at the methods. You have to understand what, what they're doing um, because we can't just judge these by the headline. We unfortunately, just like a lot of the world, um, we can't trust some of these magazines and we can't trust some of these uh, journals to, to be unbiased and to and, and just read these articles and trust them at face value. So I think that's number one. Um, and number two, you know, I, I don't think we should be dogmatic either way about these treatments right now, right? I mean, I don't think we have evidence to say that they are a, a panacea for a lot of treatments or a lot of conditions. And yet, um, by, by no means do I think that they're worthless. Um, and I think that we're still trying to figure out when to apply them for what patients in what context to get the best results that we can. Wholehearted, thank you for your time and sharing with us today. We really appreciate you being here and being a part of this. So this was great. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Dr. Mountner. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you all. Uh, good luck with your uh, uh, residencies and future careers. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you like these podcasts, please support the AAP so that we can continue to provide great content for you. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.